everyone. Welcome to Queer Lodgings, the queer-led podcast about everything Tolkien. I'm Alicia, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Grace. Hello. And Leah. Hi. And today we're joined by Cameron and Mercury, who you have heard of already if you've been listening to us for any length of time. We've not been able to shut up about their Sauron-related research this year. (laughs) Yep, for good reason. And that's why they're here at the spookiest time of year to talk about the darkest Middle-earth ship, Angbang, or Melkor slash Morgoth and Sauron. Yes, we're doing another Sauron ship-themed holiday episode. (laughs) It's (laughs) spooky-themed. We're so glad to have both of you here. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey everyone! <laughs> Thank you for having us. All right, gather round, everyone. Warm yourselves by the fire. Maybe take a little nip from the bubbling cauldron. We're delving deep today, and we might need some of the strong stuff to fortify us. <laughs> and may I just say, in the wise words of Darkwing Duck, "Let's get dangerous." <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah. All right, Lodgers, before we embark on this journey together, we want to give everyone a big heads up and content warnings about today's episode. This episode includes discussions of sex, sexual relationships, kink, BDSM, intimate partner violence at various levels of consent, sexual assault and sexual abuse, abusive relationships, and abusive power dynamics. We want you all to listen to yourselves and your needs. So if you need to disengage from the conversation and these topics, please take good care and we'll see you in the next episode. Otherwise, we hope you consider this episode an invitation to listen and better understand some experiences of fandom and culture that you may not otherwise seek out. We invite you to keep an open mind, a curious heart, and join us for some no-holds-barred freaky shipping shit. All right, before we begin, Cameron and Mercury, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about yourselves? Okay, hello. I am Cameron Borqueen. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm an independent scholar. I first read Tolkien as a teenager in the the long ago days of the mid-90s. I fell absolutely totally in love with the Legendarium and everything Tolkien wrote, but I was focused most specifically on Sauron. (laughs) Sauron was the center of that uh, obsession and that love because of all the questions that he posed for me in my understanding of the legendarium about all kinds of things, evil, theodicy, questions of, of like order and control and power. I, over the last eight years, I've kind of gotten reinvolved in Tolkien fandom after taking about a decade long break. And over the past couple of years, I've started getting involved in Tolkien scholarship. This year I presented five conference papers focused on Sauron his development over Tolkien's lifetime, and his intersections with the metaphysics of Middle-earth. And again, thank you guys for having me today. Uh, And hey, everyone. I'm Mercury Nattis. I'm a he, they, queer. I'm in between universities at the moment, but I'm currently and primarily a queer theory and Tolkien studies early career scholar who is associated with Signum University at the moment, and I'm working on my PhD applications as we speak. I came to Tolkien through the Jackson films, but have since gone happily down the rabbit hole to mix my fiction metaphors. While Sauron isn't my primary focus, he like he is Cameron's, he plays a major part in the work that I'm doing towards my PhD, which is really looking in depth at the queer mechanisms within the text that are intimately linked with the period in which Tolkien was writing. And my paper for the Tolkien Society summer seminar this year on how Sauron fills the femme fatale archetypical 
role on Numenor is just one small slice of a much bigger project I'm constantly percolating in my brain these days. I'm super happy to be here. I love you guys. Aw, we love you too. We're so excited that you guys are here. Yeah. It's definitely been a conversation that we've had a lot of times. Like, like we really want to talk about Sauron with like these two yeah. scholars. We're very excited about this. If, if you've listened to previous episodes, y'all know we've mentioned the y'all so many times. So that it's like, yay, you're finally here. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, time to be degenerates together. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for the bang. I have my tickets for the bang, I believe. <laughs> Excuse me, madam. Are you here for the bang? Uh, oh, oh, yes. My name is on the list, I believe. Uh, <laughs> no, don't make me say it. I'm going to say it. Now. <laughs> I'm like baiting you now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're here for the ang bang. We know. We're aware. We're aware. Yeah, um, let me just give some like, very general background information. If someone's somehow listening to this and doesn't know what Ang Bang is, we mentioned so before. It, <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, it's Melkor slash Sauron, or Morgoth if you know him that way. It's named Ang Bang because it happens in Ang Band, and banging is what is fucking happening in Ang Band. And if for whatever reason you don't know who. Surely you know who Sauron is. If you're listening to this, he's the big bad of Lord of the Rings. He made the ring. Melkor is kind of his boss in, in the first age, sort of. Boss. <laughs> yeah. Melkor, who's also known as Morgoth, he ends up falling at the end of the first age and being sent off into the void to do whatever he does in the void. I'm assuming just be real bored. You don't really hear that much about him in The Lord of the Rings. So if you haven't read The Silmarillion, I can understand why you wouldn't know that. But this is very much a first age and previous kind of ship. Yeah. And it's a ship that uh, even though we're just talking about it now, it's been around for a while. And we're going to go into some of the, the fandom history of it. But you just get a peek at that by the fact that this ship, Ang Bang, and then also silver gifting are ships that are referred to by a uh, a name that is associated with elements of the characters rather than the more modern portmanteau sort of ship names so it's just worth noting that like we're going into some deep fandom history here i think that's your cue cameron oh yeah. that's my cue okay that's so your we're cue. going yep. into some de- yes <laughs> we are indeed going into some deep fandom history yeah okay <laughs> Okay, so to talk about this, I, I should first put up this disclaimer that my interest in Angbang, although I am familiar with the ship and have, have enjoyed some iterations of the ship, I'm familiar with the ship mostly through the side of Sauron, because Sauron is my, my fixation, apparently. So I'm going to be a little bit biased towards him in this, and this fandom history I'm going to talk about is, it's partly comes from my own experience and recollection of being involved in fandom from the late 90s uh, until today with that, as I mentioned, that decade-long gap in there. And it has also been informed through some just research online, research through talking to other fans, et cetera, et cetera. So to give you a bit of that background, I, I discovered Tolkien online in 1998 when I first discovered the internet because Tolkien was the first thing I searched for. And then the second thing I, I searched for, I'm pretty sure, was Sauron. <laughs> of course, this this being <laughs> during the period where the Peter Jackson films were in production, I think maybe 
was it pre-production a little bit in 98? And then they started moving into production soon after that. Right. So a lot of the content out there was very Lord of the Rings heavy. A lot of it was confined to things like message boards, dedicated fan sites that had comment sections, but were more based around one particular individual or group of individuals posting content work. LiveJournal got in there at some point. You had your Yahoo groups, you had fanfiction.net. And in about 2005, you ended up getting the Silmarillion Writers Guild. The majority of that content, like I said, is was focused around Lord of the Rings. It wasn't really focused around Silmarillion content, except when you started to kind of get into the more nerdy fandom spaces or somewhere like the Silmarillion Writers Guild. Mm-hmm. Silmarillion content also tended to be a little bit more gatekept mm-hmm. than Lord of the Rings content, again, just because of that dynamic of, of who had read what and when. Queer content, dark content was much more cordoned off than it is now, but not always. There was some of it out there. Um, a lot of the Sauron ships you ran into at the time tended to be very third age centric. Again, naturally, this is the Lord of the Rings period. I can distinctly remember a few Sauron Aragorn fics that I found on fanfiction.net. And then there was a. Into it. a oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, Sauron is Sildur is one of my ships that I'm really looking forward to with Rings of Power. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Give me more of that. Completely <laughs> makes sense. It. And you'd see a lot of like Sauron with an OC or a self insert character happening at the time. There weren't nearly as many art depictions of Sauron as you, as you can find now. And the ones that you did find, they tended to either obscure him physically. So you, you have like a figure in a, in a dark cloak, you can't see the face, or they presented him in very demonic or bestial ways. Hmm. And like, to this point, what I always find this really interesting, sorry, this is like slight, slightly a digression, but I find this really, really interesting that like, even though the Silmarillion has been out for a while at this point, people are still depicting him as Lord of the Rings Saurons. They're not mm-hmm. depicting him as Silmarillion Sauron. Because if you yeah. read the Silmarillion, that's not how he looks. So, yeah. mm-hmm. But like, it's, it's interesting that it takes the internet fandom of the 2000s to change that and to actually go back and go, actually, why are we still depicting him this way? That's specifically Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That's true. That's true of scholarship, too. There's far yeah. more scholarship about Lord of the Rings era Sauron than there is about Silmarillion era Sauron or any any Sauron second age first age whatever working on it yep <laughs> yes <laughs> this is our mission yes okay so generally he's a, depicted as obscured or monstrous you got a few like professional illustrations by professional il- illustrators the big names that probably everyone knows of stuff that like Alan Lee John Howe I I, I think did Alan Lee do one I know John Howe did I'm not John sure Howe if Alan definitely Lee did, did. Yeah. Alan Lee did a Eye of Sauron, but I don't know that he did a Silmarillion right. Sauron. Okay, yeah. I think he's done one recently. He's done. He did a few for the the Fall of Numenor book that he yeah. hadn't back then. I think that. Oh my God, the new ones. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I ended up leaving fandom at like 2005 because I I don't know I had a life or something weird. I don't know. <laughs> Overrated. What's, what's, what's that? <laughs> what kind of life it was? I don't know. <laughs> I came back to, th- to fandom in 2015 uh, after I'd seen the last Peter Jackson Hobbit film. Uh, I was just randomly looking at something online, something about Sauron. And I was on Wikipedia and I discovered that somewhere in that, that break in time, there had been published a reference to his original name, Myron. And that kind of pushed me back into fandom and I realized, wow, everything had changed in that decade I had been gone. There were suddenly 
a whole plethora of, of different interpretations of Sauron. Aesthetically, physically, mm-hmm. you had tons of, of illustrations of, of Sauron in his quote-unquote bear form. A lot of them were much more feminine than you had seen previously in previous years. You know what's interesting? In that gap when you were gone is when I showed up. Mm-hmm. So while I do not have the memory that you have and I cannot remember what the hell was going on, the only the first Saurons I saw were Fiery Eye on the Tower in the Jackson films mm-hmm. and Pretty Boy Sauron. Those were the only ones I knew. Wow. Um, and Hang Bang was actually one of my first really big chips. Mm-hmm. And it was all based on this this beautiful Sauron image. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't had that previous experience. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's interesting as somebody who's kind of, one, been really focused on art. I'm sure this has gotten brought up on the podcast before. I, I'm a graphic designer by trade. I watched fan art kind of shift from really european centric models based on mm. things like alan lee john howe and the the movie depictions towards a more anime influenced model <laughs> yeah mm. and i think yeah. that kind of the pretty boy sauron came about like during that shift definitely but, but we're also definitely going to get to it because i know that we're going to talk about fobs quite a bit but Fobbs wasn't the only artist who was working at the time as well. There's a, I, I, have a, I don't remember the artist's name, unfortunately, at the moment, who was working at around the same time as Fobbs, and they kind of drew each other's styles at one point, who was drawing very Eastern-inspired Sauron, but it wasn't like Bishonen style, if that makes sense. I don't know how to really explain that. Sure. So for anyone who doesn't sure. know what that is, Bishonen is this uh, anime term that is like, you're pretty boy. You're, you're mm-hmm. anime-style pretty boy. But he wasn't that. He was broad-shouldered. He was square-jawed. But he was like had long hair and elaborately put up ways with like pins and it was and like I don't know the unfortunately I don't know the name of the, the clothing type, but the sort of Chinese style collars and it was like Ganondorf. No, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't rehydrated Ganondorf. No. <laughs> I'm the bad person who was going to say like the Finnish Boromir. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so obviously there's we're in 2015, there's much more queer content, and suddenly there are these fan works that when I left in 2005, ships with Sauron that I had, had not seen before. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't out there, but they weren't prevalent. Those being things like Silver Gifting and Ang Bang. Um, there's something that I want to, another disclaimer I want to make here, when we're talking about any kind of fan work from a historical context, Fan work is incredibly ephemeral quite often. That's true whether you're talking about zines and physical fan work because it can very easily be lost or destroyed. Mm. That's also true of digital fan works because fans take things offline, archives close down, fan content gets purged. We saw that happen uh, with LiveJournal and Mm fanfiction.net and with Tumblr as well to an extent and in a way when it comes to quote unquote adult content. Yeah. Um, And there's a little bit of, of work to preserve it as well, because some of those archives that were siloed off and cordoned off are now being loaded into archive sites like Archive of Our Own and all of that and trying to preserve what is left of the ephemera from that time. But it's not necessarily all still there to preserve. Yeah. And there's there's some things that I was able to find that represent some of the earliest examples of, of Bang Bang that I could find, which did come from 
individual small kind of niche archives, which have since been loaded onto AO3. But yeah, I'm sure there's stuff out there that is just gone. It's just gone forever. So at, anything I'm, I'm going to talk about in terms of history, there's probably stuff in here that I am going to miss, that I'm going to misrepresent because I wasn't there and because either the record no longer exists or because I haven't found it yet. So I'll plug at the end how you can get in touch with me. This is something that I'm currently working on researching. So if you have information, go to the end of this podcast or listen to the end and get in touch because I would, I would love for you to correct me on where I may be missing things. I'm so sad that I wasn't in this fandom, like in this particular ship back then, because it would have been printed out, like the fan art would have been printed out on my math binder. So I would still have it. I still have printouts of like Final Fantasy VII art. That's nowhere here or now. But speaking of Bishon and Sephiroth, I just want to, I just want to throw him in here. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. Yeah, I want to touch on something before we get like really into the history. You mentioned that while you were gone, Myron became one of Sauron's names. I I think it's interesting to note that in fandom, a lot of the times, Sauron, Anatar, and Myron are essentially three different characters, even Mm. though they're the same person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always Mm -hmm. find that really weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They may be tagged together, but they may not be treated as a singular entity. Yeah. As a one person. Right. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Some of that comes down to stuff that I talked about this year at Oxenmoot in a paper I gave there. Which I, I think because part of that is because in those three different ages, you have Tolkien writing about him in three different periods. And he never entirely, for whatever reason, he never entirely synthesizes those three different periods. Partly because, I mean, probably because these are three different texts. Like the Lord of the Rings is a very different type of text than the Silmarillion. It's yeah. written in universe by different people. It has a different function. So I, I think there's a lot of like, I don't like the word canonical, but canonical, blah, blah, textual reasons why that may be happening along with the, a slew of fandom reasons why that but may see, be that, happening. That always really drives me a little bit crazy because like, don't you want a multidimensional character? Oh don't yeah. Don't you want a character who is different at different times in their life? Like, yeah. <laughs> I think that makes him incredibly interesting that he's yeah. different at oh, different yeah. times in his life. Yeah. Not like Agreed. He's not like, to use a poor psychiatric term he's not having multiple personality disorder or something like that you know like right. he's <laughs> he's one person with yeah different elements and aspects to him well, that's him fundamentally he's a shapeshifter he's a yeah. shapeshifter textually metatextually literally figuratively that's who he is you know much like all of the um i knew yeah <laughs> every single <laughs> one of them <laughs> pretty much pretty much Except the, the thing about sauron is I, I think he's the only one that we actually see shift shape in a story, in a narrative, an actual narrative. Such a narrative. good story. Yeah. Such yeah. a good, oh. Yeah. In text. As much as I want to count Tolkien's letter talking about how Yavanna is sometimes just a tree for yeah. shits yeah. and gigs, you can't Ulmo, really count that. And Ulmo but, is the sea. To be yeah. the ocean. Get Ulmo in the sea. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's also something that it, we, in the modern age, especially those of us who grew up with any sort of social media like Tumblr or what have you should understand the malleability of identity because we've been able to change usernames or blog focuses or academic focuses or whatever throughout our lives. And our lives are much shorter than that of a a being who is like in Arda for all of Arda's existence sort of thing. Definitely. Yeah. I think all of this ambiguity surrounding Sauron and how he has lived through all of these texts and 
the contradictions that are rolled up in him is what makes him such a compelling character and like what makes him so fun to ship and what makes him such a queer icon yeah in this ship he is way more compelling than melkor oh definitely yeah Yeah. (laughs) definitely he is i definitely agree with that anyway so back to the history okay back (laughs) to the history. history The history of Angbang kind of runs alongside the history of these changing depictions in Sauron. One thing that I, I actually discovered just in the last year that I didn't realize, the very first extant work of transformative fiction in Tolkien fandom was a short work of fiction that was published in the 1960 fanzine I Palantir, uh, written by George Heap about Sauron. It was... Wow the events of the Lord of the Rings kind of recontextualized from Sauron's point of view. Mm. It's currently, you can actually go look at it right now. It's housed and digitized in the Marquette archives. It follows this trope of the bad guys are really the good guys and they were slandered by the victors. And Mm -hmm. here's what really happened kind of track. Right. With the idea being that it was Sauron's intention from the beginning for the one ring to be destroyed such that the three rings would be destroyed with it, lessening the power of the elves, which the the document calls the immortals, and freeing men from the tyranny of the elves mm-hmm. and letting them live in freedom, which is a theme that's going to come back up with Sauron and Melkor and ultimately the ships that that surround them. This is something that's, it's, you know, this is 1960. This is written pre-Silmarillion, so it's... It's part of a time in fandom where you had fans who were kind of debating and, and questioning and very curious about what the Silmarillion might contain. Mm. And so in a sense, it, it interacts with, with that question as well, with fans trying to, I don't want to say create their own Silmarillion, but to try and understand without having any of these primary texts, what that history that they're getting a glimpse of in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings might have really been. Mm-hmm. Something that I want to plug, uh, Don Walsuma, Kate Coker, and Maria Alberto have all done some really interesting work on fandom studies and the history of fandom, including around Tolkien. And there is a piece called Affirmational Fandom, Transformational Fandom, and Two Old Tolkien Fanfics on the Silmarillion Writers Guild website, which Don Walsuma wrote, which talks about this piece. It's called Departure in Peace. So you might want to check that out uh, if you want to learn more about it. That same reversal I was talking about, it's really reminiscent of what happens in a piece that's probably more well-known to anyone who is familiar with transformational works of Tolkien. It's the Russian fic that's actually been published in physical form, The Last Ring Bearer, by, I hope I'm saying this, Kirill Yeshkov. I so want to read that. Like, I so, so, so want to read that. There is apparently an English translation online. I was going to say, I... I have encountered the English translation online. So yeah. yeah, The Last Ring Bearer is definitely one of those. I kind of feel like if you've been online in, in Tolkien fandom for kind of any length of time, I think you kind of eventually sort of run into it or at least hear about it. That yeah. might be just my perception, but I kind of feel like this is sort of like once you reach The Last Ring Bearer, you've kind of like... I don't know, you pass through a gateway into real Tolkien <laughs> fandom <laughs> nerdery or something like that, where you're like, oh, yeah, here's this. Here's like the, the final gate into, I don't know, nerdvana of Tolkien <laughs> fandom. Cameron, <laughs> yes. How, what was the distance in time between The Last Ring Bearer and The Black Book of Arda? Black Book of Arda actually predates Last Ring Bearer by... Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I've seen anywhere from like seven to eight, no, six to seven years. Okay. 
this might be a good place then. You want to to start in? (laughs) I was going to say, I have never heard of the Black Book of Arda. Tell us a little bit more about that. So the Black Book of Arda was written initially, I believe, in either 92 or 93. I've seen I've seen a few conflicting dates on that, although there were rewritings and re-releases of it in physical print up through, I think, 2002. Hmm. I may be wrong about that, but there have been a few. It's a piece written by Natalia Vasilyeva and Natalia Nekrasova, and I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. I've only read the first three chapters, and I read them last night. Thank you, Alicia, for sending me. (laughs) Also very Um, excited to read that. Alicia coming in clutch, yeah. (laughs) They they can be found on the Wayback Machine. That's the only way you can find them. The website has been purged. I will put a link in our resources. Yeah, and it's it's only the first three chapters that have been translated into English. So that is all I am familiar with other than through just fandom osmosis hearing about it from other people this is also me calling to arms uh any russian fans who want to translate the black book of arda for us we'd be super happy about it (laughs) or any portuguese speakers because there is a portuguese translation of it as well yes exactly that so basically it, it takes a similar tack to the last ring bearer in that it does a what if all of this is biased and it's actually the bad guys who were the good guys and history as we know it in the Silmarillion was written by the victors. It's it's one of those pieces that takes Tolkien's assertion that these are texts that he is translating that were written by in-universe characters very seriously and mm. says, well, they didn't know what they were talking about or they have a biased perspective. It's Noldor propaganda is what yeah, it is. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. it's the Noldor mm-hmm. propaganda, except it's it's happening in, in the case of Lord of the Rings. It was happening with the Lord of the Rings text. This case is happening with the Silmarillion text. It's very much centered on Melkor as at least based on the first three chapters, it very much feels like Paradise Lost, if Paradise Lost truly took Satan seriously Mm. and wasn't Mm. looking at him as (sighs) deceiving himself. Now, Mm. that may may change in later chapters. I can't read them. But the first three chapters are very, very solidly in that vein of interrogating these theological questions that the Legendarium raises, including some really tried and true real-world questions about free will and the nature, knowledge, and goodness of God. And the thing is, like, and we're going to see this as we continue on with the history, that the the Russian fandom has a huge influence on this ship. This Mm. ship was pretty much created, in my opinion, by the Russian fandom Mm. in a lot of ways. Like, from the Black Book of Arda to Fobbs, who we'll talk about, and onwards and upwards, I guess. And I always wonder how much of this Russian fascination with the bad guys of the story stems from Cold War politics. Like, mm-hmm. putting aside that Tolkien wholeheartedly rejected the allegorization of the story, there is such a strong pop culture through line during the Cold War where Western media makes those from the East the villains. And instead of the normal flavor of Orientalism that's been going on for ages and ages and ages and ages, specifically coded it as Russian, as opposed to Japanese, Chinese, Indian, Middle Eastern. Right. The Cold War, it became Russian. And so I always wonder how much of the Russian fascination with treating the text this way is in some ways a pushback response and how much of it is the pushback response and how much of it is actually a very dangerous threat of Russian nationalism that dances with fascism. And where do we sort of find that gray area of is it an innate sort of feeling that if if it's a Western piece of media that is depicting the East as bad, clearly they're depicting us. 
So we mm. should be identifying with them saying, actually, oh, they're not terrible. Or is it we agree with these bad guys because we are part of this very dangerous threat of Russian nationalism that dances with fascism. And you, right. it's really hard to tell the difference of where that is. Right. And yeah. then I would also argue, threading in the fact that this is a an inherently queer ship mm-hmm. and there's been a very complicated history of how the Russian government regime has treated its queer citizens. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But that also doesn't mean the queer fascists don't exist. No, they definitely do. <laughs> um, Sorry, guys. They do. Yeah. Um, and and actually, like, in her paper, When Philology Becomes Ideology, the Russian perspective on J.R.R. Tolkien, Olga Markova notes that one of the major reasons, if not the major reason, that Tolkien wasn't published in Russia until 1992 was because it was assumed by the Soviet government to be Western propaganda, mm-hmm. pitting the freedom of the West against the tyranny of the East. And while we know that's not true now, and Tolkien hated that reading, it totally <laughs> tracks that people used to this kind of dichotomy coming out of the West would sympathize with the baddies because they're so used to sympathizing with the baddies who are so often an allegory for them. Yeah. So it absolutely tracks. Just like queer people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of yeah. the interesting things that I've learned through this um, in regards to uh, Russians and literary criticism in general is there is a Mithlore article called How Russians See Tolkien, and it's by Vladimir Rushnetsky. Mm-hmm. And he talks very specifically about how Russians at this point in time in the 70s were taught to read everything allegorically. <laughs> and the only way to mm-hmm. actually justify something as a piece of literature is if it had an allegorical meaning. Which, oh, wow. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My parents are both soviets and that is completely true <laughs> completely mm. accurate mm. <laughs> yeah yeah i think we also can't ignore that during the cold war though this was not tolkien's intent for allegory there are certainly people in the west who read it as that type of allegory to make western culture the good guys and to justify yeah. western culture as the good guys in opposition to Soviets and communists in the Cold yeah. War and, mm-hmm. and, you know, queer people being accused of being communist here in the United States and all of this. Like, these are all very complicated threads that lean into some of the ways that Tolkien may have been viewed in Russia because of the conflicts that were going on in the rest of the world. And 1984 and Lord of the Rings came out really, really close together. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That makes I a think- lot of sense. There's something interesting in what that paper that Alicia mentioned, how Russians see Tolkien, the Grushnetsky, Grushnetsky, excuse me, paper. He contrasts uh, in talking about how the effect that the Lord of the Rings specifically, because this was written in the 90s. And, I, and at that time, the Silmarillion hadn't been officially translated into Russian yet. But he contrasts what he sees as this ethical and moral framework that's apparent in Tolkien with the communism that he sees. Russia coming out of and claims that, quote, because Russia has existed until recently as a totalitarian state, Tolkien's words about a prisoner escaping from the walls of a prison have a special relevance here. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's a, that's a quote from On Fairy Stories. And I, and I think that's an interesting take, considering the Black Book of Arda is very much about escaping from totalitarianism and escaping mm. from a prison and gaining freedom and independence and free will, except in the case of the Black Book of Arda, the person who's preventing that freedom is Eru. 
and the Valar, but specifically Eru, who Melkor is rebelling against, not out of a desire that he wants to be bad for the sake of being bad, but for the fact that he wants to, and apparently this is only based on my reading of the first three chapters, because he wants to grant freedom and beauty and and life and even mortality in this story. It appears that he's the one who created men mm. to other sentient beings. So it's, it's an interesting twist if what Grishnetsky is saying is is accurate about Tolkien fandom at that time. Yeah, Comrade Melkor. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also like so dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Like, I do want to make a good point. Like, I, I, while I do think there is tremendous value in considering the idea that we are being given a biased depiction of our enemies, it's super, super valuable, especially in regards to, say, the orcs, who are caricatures and racist caricatures in a lot of ways. It's such a slippery slope from maybe we haven't been told the whole story to, well, maybe the enemies are the good guys. And Tolkien's morality is not that gray. Like, it's gray when it comes to humans and humanoid allegories, but or analogs, rather. But it's less gray with the theological characters. The theological characters are a lot more black and white than what the mm. morality is. And so if you're saying that this character who Tolkien has specifically written to be a tyrant might actually be the good guy, what are you doing? Is this how we end up in the bad place? <laughs> like- yeah. That's a really good point. And I, I guess it kind of like speaks to some of the power, I guess, that can be behind some of these transformational fan works and kind of considering where you can go with with some of these things. And yeah, that's really fascinating. I actually hadn't heard of the Black Book of Arda before you guys had mentioned it. Like I the only real kind of major, I guess, text that kind of dealt with this sort of perspective was was the Lax Ringbearer. So, yeah, I super appreciate you guys bringing this up and talking about this. I think this is also really interesting to consider in the context of some of Tolkien's letters, particularly letter 246, where he's uh, reflecting on like who would have, as a ring bearer, been a, a poor choice or, or been you know worse as a ring lord than Sauron. And he mm. comes away with the assertion that Gandalf as Ringlord would have been far worse than Sauron. Mm -hmm. He would have remained righteous, but self-righteous. He would have continued to rule and order things for good and the benefit of the subjects according to his wisdom, which was and would have remained great. Hmm. So, and, and there's a marginal note where he says, thus while Sauron multiplied some sort of evil, he left good clearly distinguishable from it. Gandalf would have made good detestable and seem evil. Ooh, yeah. And I think this yeah. is all really interesting to contemplate, both in the context of questioning who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, is this biased? And then also how this would have been received at various points since publication by yeah. various audiences. Yeah, definitely. Who's the bad guy? What's the bias? But also what is <laughs> the ethical core of the conversation. Yeah. Like it's yeah. so easy to get distracted by the good intentions. Yeah. And and a, a question too of even if if it is propaganda, even if mm -hmm. we've been sold a false bill of goods, does that automatically justify the actions of the quote unquote bad guys who we're now yeah. Yeah. considering? Yeah. Yeah, now yeah. we're getting a little too close to politics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A little maybe poignant. Uh, timely, timely uh, yes, definitely, discussion. Yeah. Mercury, your point about how Tolkien is more morally elastic with humanoid characters mm -hmm. versus the more godlike characters is really interesting because when I was reading the first 
I read the first one chapter of Black Book of Arda. It was too flowery for me. I couldn't get very far in it. <laughs> but it was giving me big Feanor and Manway vibes. Like mm-hmm. Melkor is like chafing against what he sees as a stifling kind of overlord and just wants to kind of do his own thing, right? In the same way that I, I personally read Feanor as someone mm-hmm. who's just trying to do what they like. Now, I'm not saying Feanor is not a fucking dick because he is, but he just <laughs> wants to like do what he wants to do, right? And he, yeah. he wants Manway to get off his dick and just let him do what he wants. And I, I get that same kind of vibe with Melkor. So I, I mm-hmm. think it's mm-hmm. an, an interesting treatment because it is something that I personally read as paralleling something that Tolkien wrote. But I think the difference between the levels of power of the beings is an interesting difference that I hadn't really thought about while I was reading it. And it's giving me something to chew on. Now. Yeah. And I wonder if, again, I, we are getting off topic, but <laughs> I wonder if, again, I wonder if so much of that is Tolkien the man versus Tolkien the Catholic. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. when he is talking about people, he is a lot more forgiving. He is yeah. a lot more forgiving. He's a lot more compassionate. He's a lot more sympathetic. But when he's talking about, god he's like well this is what doctrine is and this is and you're technically getting into the crux of my phd question is uh how is tolkien marrying his real life with his catholic life and how that kind of comes through with queer characters very very strongly but that's another topic for another time (laughs) this this actually i'm probably gonna jump back on this myself a a little bit later (laughs) Because of course we are. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to like Tolkien and the Odyssey, because I read Tolkien's work in the Legendarium is very, very much him battling with his ideas of the Odyssey against his his own understanding of Catholic doctrine. Same. So, yeah, we could talk about that for hours. <laughs> That's the next episode that we're going to invite y'all back on for. I, so. I know we we planned a follow up episode. A follow up. <laughs> <So>, yes. <laughs> so I was just going to say I've been reading through the lens of some research about generations over the last hundred years too. And I think it's really interesting to consider how Tolkien's path through all of this shifts with changing times because he's writing it over such a long period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also how it is received by different generations of people, social generations of people in different places because of how generational shifts tend to shift between what values of collectivism and what values of individualism Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. prioritized in each generation, broadly speaking, on average. We need a whole separate episode where we 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 just sit and talk about the (laughs) metaphysical. (laughs) interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The ontological, metaphysical, theological. That's that's my shit. I'm like, that's... (laughs) This is, this is like the sexy shit. It's like, it's, it's oh, cool, we man. Even... It's cool. But have you ever thought about the Odyssey? That's the cool <laughs> shit. We haven't even gotten to the sexy shit yet. We're yes. in there. Buckle up. Yeah, yeah. I do want to mention how sexy the Theodicy part is, but I'll make that very brief. <laughs> you're either going to convert Melia or it's going to be a, like, your kink is not my kink and that's okay and moment. That's okay. And that's fine too. It's gonna, that's, how it, that's how it rolls, man. <laughs> I just want to model this for everyone. <laughs> so anyway, back to the history. Okay, ship, Aang Bang. We're actually truly getting into Aang Bang because <laughs> I, to, now this is to my understanding again, I don't think the Black Book of Arda necessarily is Aang Bang. 
But again, I can only read the first three chapters in English, so I'm not sure. However, if we want to actually talk about specifically a Melkor Sauron ship, the Angbang ship, we should first distinguish a little bit between a Melkor Sauron ship and Angbang itself, because it actually didn't get coined the name Angbang until about 2012, 2013. Hmm. Um, when the really ship- that late? Yeah. Wow, that's oh, interesting. That's yeah. for that, yeah. The ship itself, as far as I can tell, the earliest examples I've found date back to about 2002. With There's a piece that was on the archive least expected. It, it's now on AO3, um, written by Maburishi no Yume. And I don't know if I can pronounce the name of this this thick. It's Melte Tehi, I think, perhaps. I think it's Tehi or something Tehi? like that. Yeah. Okay. It is one that actually specifically cites the Black Book of Arda as inspiring it. There was another fic in 2003 by Makamu on the Hennethanun archive called Dark Light. It is also now, I believe, on AO3. There was an archive, and it's still up, it still exists, Ansereg, in which the fan Tyellis has gathered her work. In 2004, she published a piece called Terrible Alchemy, which is early Angbang, but not yet called Angbang. Incidentally, she actually wrote one of the earliest examples of Silver Gifting I know of, which is the 2003 One Ring to Bind Them. You may also be familiar with her in fandom because she was one of the earliest fan work creators to write elf BDSM and to like, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she like created a whole set of rules around it, which I think is what Ansereg refers to. Again, which I'm mm. probably mispronouncing that, but she is also pretty famous for having written a, a 2003 essay on what Tolkien really said about elf sex or what Tolkien really said about sex. I, I don't remember the title exactly. I wonder how that uh, compares to what we have now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Let's <sighs> see. Published a piece in Malorn called Warm Beds or Good about... We have mm-hmm. cited that before. You have? have. Yep. We cited yes. that. Awesome. Yeah. And then Tolkien Fandom History, which is a, a Tumblr blog, actually interviewed her in 2018. And one of her answers was about back when she was writing for Answer Egg, what would she not have expected to be going on in 2018 in, in Tolkien fandom? And her answer was, quote, if you had asked me which pairings people would be discussing with me 12 years later, I would never have said the Sauron pairings, Anatar, Celebrimborg, Melkor, Myron. So in this period around 2002 to 2007, you also see a bit of a surge in Sauron content in the Silmarillion Writers Guild, where you see a Melkor Sauron ship as kind of a background ship. Hmm. I think there was a fic written by Pandemonium 213, who's best known for The Apprentice, which was published on the Silmarine Writers Guild in 2007. Uh, I which... recognize this name. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is a big deal because I don't remember <laughs> shit. <laughs> she, she's, she is pretty cool, I must say. She, she writes a very um, scientist Sauron depiction that I, that I quite like. Elegy for Numenor is another piece that appeared uh, in 2009 by Elf Scribe. It actually is one that was recommended in USA Today in a what? May 20th piece from 2015. Yes, they, they wrecked wow. a, a uh, explicit Tolkien fic. Oh, my wow. God. <laughs> wow. I'm so happy. Amazing. <laughs> That's so weird. And it's, it's another example of a fic that it's specifically Sauron Arpharazon. But Oh, yes. yeah. You, Hell yeah. <laughs> Ricky is so winning. happy. I'm so happy I need to read this. <laughs> I, be- I believe there is a, if not specifically a flashback, there is a sense that there was a, a Melkor Sauron ship in the past. Hmm. 
there's another example by Rosandal Chasing Mirages, which I don't have a date on here, but I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that was 2008 or 2009. I think I know that person. Yeah. They, I think they're, they still post, I believe, on Tumblr, but... To be fair, this this is also a ship name. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I've met someone who uses that as their pen name. I wonder if it's the same person. I assume it's the same person. Interesting. I would also just add that in the Archive Library of Moria, the earliest Sauron Melkor pick that I could find was also 2009. So you can sort of hmm. see it gaining momentum around that time. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And And then we hit 2012 and 2013, late 2012, early 2013, which is apparently when something cosmic happened and <laughs> the planets aligned and something astrological was going on because there was an explosion of content about Sauron and specifically content about Melkor Sauron and you get the coining of the name Angde. I mean, hmm. we can take a guess as to the reason why and that person's name is Fobbs. Yes, like the, mm. I mean, one of one of the reasons why it was. I think there were a lot yeah. of reasons why, but I think yeah. Bob is the reason it became as popular as it did in the iteration we probably most associate with it. Yeah, because it's like, and this is why we wanted to talk about the Russian fandom having such a huge influence on this ship. It's because you have Black Book of Arda, you have Last Ring Bearer, and you have Fobbs, and Fobbs comes from this environment where out of this sort of bubbling melting pot of Lord of the Rings fandom and Silmarillion fandom that's coming out of Russia. And I cannot believe these are not connected. Oh, they, they have, have to be. be. They surely have. So to. it's all, it, we, we are coming at the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion from a very Western perspective. We cannot relate without someone having told us what's going on elsewhere. Hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I think this is a really, really good picture of it that we are hmm. getting from this ship specifically. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I agree. Right, so tell us a little bit more about FOBs and their contribution in this context. Well, a lot of the FOBs content, eh, let's see, there was a lot of stuff that kind of converged in 2012-2013. FOBs was one element of that starting right around the end, I believe in like November or December of, of 2012, FOBs started posting illustrations of Angbang content. And this this included an image of Sauron that was quite a bit different than the obscured or bestial or demonic. He was very fair. He was even rather feminine. One of her early depictions actually is a version of uh, an unused BTS image from the Return of the King DVD, which it mm, is yeah. probably one of, you know, the Anatar, Anatar image that I'm talking uh, about. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of it right mm. now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's that, Shame but done in that. Bob's style. Oh yeah. It's such a, it's such a, like, interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I would have liked it there, just because in that I'm story glad it exists. Yes, but I'm glad that Fobs took it somewhere else, maybe. Yeah, and took it for their own. And yeah, yeah. It's also worth noting Fobs is a professional illustrator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are having really, really high quality comic style illustration coming out of one artist. Yeah. And prolifically, like a lot of it is happening because this is what she does for a living. Prolifically, and people are Huge. picking up on it who are involved in Tumblr, DeviantArt, and they're copying the style. There are cosplayers who are copying the style, specifically femme cosplayers who are a doing. Yeah, really? Yeah, a friend they're... of mine, I was uh, went relatively recently went to a convention with them and they were Bob Sauron. Yeah. 
there's been a lot like starting not long after after she posted those first illustrations you started to see cosplayers doing specifically yeah. that Bob's Sauron now, mm. and Bob's wasn't the only person illustrating Sauron Melkor at the time this is a good time to say the uh, the artist I found the name of the artist that I was talking about before who was working at the same time as Bob's this is Gerwell G-E-R-W-E-L-L oh yeah I know um, Gerwell yeah who is a slightly different beautiful Sauron that's coming around at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's Bob's, there's Gerwell. Uh, another account that's putting out a lot of work is Zlu and Luff. I believe on, on Tumblr they're known as, known as Angband style. Um, it, it seems like there's a little bit of a, or there was historically, a division based around how Sauron specifically was depicted. There's an account misbehaving Maiar, their depiction of Sauron and the Angband style depiction of Sauron tended to be buffer, more muscular. Um, this person looks like he's a smith and he works in the forge. Whereas you have the Fobbs depiction, which is very, very feminine often. It, it got a little less feminine the more Fobbs worked on it over the years, but the early depictions are especially feminine. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And there was a lot of like, I remember a little bit of, of this still going on when I came back into fandom in 2015, but there was there was some contention in some quarters over which is the preferred look for Sauron. Generally speaking, what? I Phantom think... Phantom Wars! What? Yeah, oh, no one have ever thought. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought. Did. What? <laughs> I do want to jump in and just point out that one of the notes for this section is, who is the sparkly twink? <laughs> so much. Question. It's like because they're the, like the Angband style and the misbehaving Maiar images... Melkor is the sparkly twink. He's the one with the flaming Ooh, golden yeah. hair. Mm-hmm. And Sauron is much less fair. He tends to be depicted with a, a darker skin tone. Um, whereas Melkor is problematic is very pale. to begin with in mm, a lot of ways. It is. But the whole issue of, of how Sauron and Melkor are depicted and racial coding in all of mm-hmm. them is mm-hmm. so fraught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's uh, essentially who is the sparkly twink. That's that's, that's the, how you can tell the, the two styles apart. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> that's amazing. Th- this is fascinating because in a, a recent fandom podcast, I heard people talking about the history of the Star Trek fandom. Uh, and Classic. it was in the context of, it, there's always a lot of discourse about, you know, what sexual positions different characters take and whatever. But the way that this was framed was a fascination from people who had been in fandom a long time and the shift in perception about, to quote them, which of these characters gets bred. (laughs) 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 Which was a hilarious way for for me to come into this this discussion on this. One of the things that they were pointing out was that the fanish perceptions of the sexual dynamics between Kirk and Spock have dramatically shifted as yeah. time goes on in a, yeah. a fandom that's been around for, you know, more than half a decade, significantly more than half a decade. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that happening here with another long running fandom with the shift in depictions. Yeah. <laughs> who is the sparkly twink? <laughs> yeah. Who is the sparkly twink? This is also the time, and I and I have to credit Sky Eventide on Twitter for pointing me to, to this. This is the time period when Angbang is coined as the ship name. Before that, they were often called Melron. Mm. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who, that's that's no Angbang, good. Angbang, 
better okay. ship name. Definitely, yeah. definitely Portmanteau better. ship names. Man, they just... I mean, there's great. also... The other option is moron. So <laughs> it's sort of I like... I have heard that. I think I did see that somewhere at some point. I like so that. So there's one more. Great, and then there's worse. <laughs> this reminds me about how we were deciding Star Trek portmanteau ship names back in 2009 because they hadn't existed yet, even though the Star Trek fandom had been around forever. Right. And Chekhov and Sulu... You either had Chulu, which is what we went with, or Sukhoff. <laughs> so we were like, we can't go with Sukhoff. Why not? We, why the fuck not? <laughs> I mean, I let's say the very the very earliest name for Kirk and Spock was Spurk when <laughs> the, when the portmanteau of cock is right there. And I'm kind of like, you guys are cowards. <laughs> right. Either that Lean or Either that or we're just not privy to those fandom conversations where that was the way things were done. Very good I don't point. Know. Very good um, point, Grace. We you. also had a lot of debates in uh, Roswell, New Mexico <laughs> fandom. There's a character whose name is Alex. And when you try to portmanteau the name Alex, literally everything that you portmanteau it with just ends up sounding like a condom brand. So, you know, <laughs> lean into it. I will say. You know who aren't cowards? Angbangers. Yep. <laughs> not oh, yeah. cowards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Sally Four. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I think what's interesting about this time period is you've got Fobbs, and Fobbs becomes very popular, but you've also had this run-up of through the 90s. You've got the whole history of Middle Earth that's been published. You've got Morgoth's Ring, which has a whole bunch of juicy stuff in it as far as Sauron and, and Melkor. You've got Blind Guardians, Nightfall in Middle-Earth from 1998, which has one particular dialogue scene between Melkor and Sauron that I think you could easily ship if you wanted to. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the few examples of that that existed that, that I was familiar with that early. You've got what I mentioned, the 2004 depiction of Anatar on the Return of the King DVD, where you see him looking much more fair. It's probably one of the first fair depictions of, of Sauron some fans had seen. In 2007, you've got the publication of Karma Elba Lambron 17, which includes the name Myron, which one of the meanings is precious. And what mm-hmm. self-respecting fan is not going to take that and run with it? Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. obligated. Yeah, they, yeah, you're obligated. You've got Fobbs becoming popular. We're assuming that she was probably familiar with Black Book of Arda. And you've got the English translation of Black Book of Arda coming out online in 2012. Hmm. And this is all in the context of a world where we've seen a greater interest in stories like Wicked and Maleficent. These stories where what if the, the villains you know, were, were the heroes or at least the protagonists of our stories. Um, you have it in the context of what we talked about with the, the shonen culture and the surgeon anime that's suddenly available in the West. I just want to interrupt there and say one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking about this, and it, you've noted in our, our notes document, like Wicked 1995 as the book, 2003 as the musical, Maleficent 2014. But one of the first times that I encountered this was actually in a children's book. And it was the true story of the three little pigs as told by a wolf, Alexander Wolf. It was oh, written I know in this. 1989. Yep. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. great. Generationally, I was yeah to ask these questions in this context and then you know by 2014 as we're getting movies doing this and all that my generation is growing up with that 
Yeah. yeah. And people exactly. wonder why we're not a generation of kinksters. Come on. We're raised when like the big bad wolf might be the good guy, you know? <laughs> Maybe this the big bad wolf happened. is sexy. Maybe, Maybe that's the wolf okay. <laughs> there, in fact, no you have come to uh, Stephen Sondheim and Into the Woods. Yeah. And that's yeah. a question oh, that God, he certainly has. <laughs> Oh no! It all comes back down to musical theater. God damn it! <laughs> Sorry, that was my degree. I mean, I want to have a conversation about musical theater. There needs to be more Middle Earth musicals so we can have a whole conversation about Middle Earth musicals. It's yes. Ang Bang. It's Ang Bang. <laughs> ink, ink, ship with the manacles and whips. It's Ang Bang. It's Ang Bang. I I wasn't gonna do it. Even so, talk about Morgoth at all. Do they, <laughs> do they get to in this musical try to get the rights to the the whip song from yes. uh, where there's a whip there's a way and they animate it? I mean, I really think Hell it needs yes. a reprise. Hell yes! Oh, oh my god! Also, yes. guys, can I just tell you how disappointed I am that not a single person on Ao3 has written a Ang Bang fit called Morgoth's Ring? Not one. Wow. <laughs> to be fair, though, Cowards. I literally. So I have six Ang Bang fix bookmarked on AO3. One of them is all about cock rings. So, you know, we're, we're getting exists. there. We're getting there. <laughs> I think it does lend itself a little bit more to a Sauron second age, third age yeah, sort sure. of scenario there rather than Morga. I think that's just the, the, the lower hanging fruit, if you will. <laughs> it depends totally. on what kind of ring you're discussing. Yeah. It does. <laughs> Um, all right. Yeah. Where were back, we? Back, back to you, Cameron. <laughs> I think Alicia's got me like plotting out fanfic here. Oh, man. That, yeah. that is awesome. I And I want to see it when you are done with it. I'm never I, writing it. <laughs> just just going to stay in the drafts folder for forever. Somewhere listening to this, there is a Morgoth fangirl who is so mad at us. Right now. I, know. I am so sorry that I am, I am obsessed with Sauron. Minutes. Me sorry. too. That's why I'm not interrupting with anything more. I'm also a stuff on this. I'm sorry, fan. One fan who's freely pissed at us. I'm so sorry. The one Morgoth fan that's out there. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, okay, both so- of you. There's two of you, at least. Yeah. So Morgoth, giving him his due. <laughs> yeah. We'll, as we'll we had always this, this, this yeah. says, I, I, We'll get to him. I don't know this this show, but and I wish I could find the Tumblr post that pointed this out. Um, there was an anime that was produced in 82 to 83. And I'm going to try to say this name. Boku Patilero? Patilero? I'm not sure. There is an article on Tuxedo Unmasked that talks about the similarities in the relationship between these two characters, this queer relationship in this anime between these two characters and how similar that is to zoocyte and kunsite in sailor moon of course yeah Um, yeah yeah but something that i did not make this connection someone else on tumblr did and i'm so sorry i've not been able to find the post that did this pointed out how similar these two characters in the show look to the fob's depiction of melkor and sauron hmm. it is very similar that's fascinating there is one one member of the pairing has um this long flowing golden red hair much more feminine looking the other member has the long, straight black hair, more masculine looking. It's a little bit uncanny when you see it. I don't know that that's evidence that that, that connection actually happened, but it, it's interesting to think about. We're just in, in the context of mapping on to archetypes. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So after 2014, there there have been a couple other surges in Angbang content. It, it tends to kind of, you know, become popular for a while and then die down a bit, become popular again as, as new individuals enter the fandom. Oh, and I should also note that in that 2012-2013 period, that's also when the Hobbit films were coming out and when the mm-hmm. purges from LiveJournal and FanFiction.net were happening. So you had mm-hmm. all these new members of fandom entering spaces where Angbang was starting to happen. Mm-hmm. And that I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of what caused it to, uh, to pro- proliferate. Everything's connected. It truly <laughs> is. So now you see Sauron everywhere, which I'm very happy about. Do you have a question? Because this is a piece of fandom that I am just not in, but I know that there have been at least one, if not a few, depictions of Sauron, Anatar, etc. in video games. Yes. And I'm curious when those video games, I don't have a good context for when the video games came out. I know they were Mm -hmm. largely in the time when I was on a little bit of a fandom break. Yeah. So I'm curious if there's any sense that these shifting depictions of Sauron were then reflected in the video mm-hmm. game images and popularized even more than yeah. from there. I definitely yeah. think they were. Yeah. Shadow of War and Shadow of Mordor are 2014-2017. There you go. Yeah. And that's and definitely, that's a distinct depiction of Anatar from, say, the Fobs depiction, but there's also a sense where when people are writing the Anatar, they tend to, to, or depicting Anatar, they tend to depict him, not just name him differently, they tend to depict him as very distinct from how mm-hmm. they depict the Lieutenant of Angband, Myron, or how they depict right. Numenor, Sauron. And there are some other Anatar or Second Age Sauron depictions that are quite similar to how he appears in the Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War games. Yeah. Which came first, I don't know off the top of my head. But I would not know. <laughs> I, ha- I have to imagine there's been some some cross-contamination, so to speak, going on there. <laughs> totally. I would be shocked if there wasn't, quite honestly. But so currently... As Mercury said, everything is all connected. Everything is connected. Everything's connected. <laughs> so currently, Angbang is it's the most popular. Let me put it this way. There are the, the, the largest number of fics in the Angbang pairing on AO3 if you search for Sauron and look at relationships. It beats out Celebrimbor, Sauron... The third runner-up is actually Galadriel Sauron, and then running about neck and neck with that right now is is actually Galadriel Halbrand, which is <laughs> Ooh, you should be ashamed. Let's not kink shame anyone. He is the one the one person who's just like yeah. I, you know, if, if people want to ship that, I am totally cool with it. It'll also be interesting to see, like that's clearly the impact of a new media piece, which yeah. is Rings of Power, and the way mm-hmm. they've chosen thus far to depict the character of Sauron. It'll be totally. really interesting to see if that continues in that vein or gets complicated as new seasons it. appear. I'm not looking forward to the fandom wars in any yeah. way, but I, I'm curious if, as a depiction of Sauron, maybe gets more complicated, we might see a shift in what fan fiction and fan works start to appear, or if this is going to lock us into a a new direction. And I hope it doesn't lock us into it. I mean, I, I don't mind it. seeing new depictions, but I hope it doesn't so. drown out other depictions. You know, I mean, like that's my yeah. my big 
as you say, let's, like, let's not yeah. get yeah. too far down this yeah. rabbit yeah. hole because yeah. that's yeah. not what this episode is about. Yeah. Yeah. But and we can go on a few years <laughs> before we see where that impact goes. Mm-hmm. It's it's just yeah. a... one thing, and then I will let this drop. I want to defend my kink shaming. It's not that I'm <laughs> shaming these people; it's that I am upset about the fear erasure that is happening oh, in Brains yeah. of Power. Oh, I agree. That, that's Completely where I'm 110 percent. Yes, we could talk about that for another hour. Yeah, <laughs> uh, follow up episode number two. <laughs> I frankly, I would love to see if there were a resurgence of other Sauron-related pairings or queer depictions of Sauron, even in the context of that. that current, they're piece. not gonna do it. No, it, I don't. I don't expect that that'll happen in any sort of canonical sense. <laughs> But I would love to see a fandom response that keeps things queer. Yes. Highlights the queerness that has always been. I agree. Agreed. Central to this character, whether canonical or whatever pieces want to go there or not, or adaptational pieces want to go there or not. Fandom, get on it. Grace. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All you beautiful monster fuckers. Get out there. Yes. Make Sauron queer again. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So we've hit modern day at this point. There's currently like 1,400 fics on AO3 that are Angbang. Surprisingly, half of them are M and up, and half of Mm. them are rated below that. I don't know if those are accurate. Hmm. That sounds surprising. Yeah. Is there also a no archive warnings apply? Yes. Rating in there is significant. Uh, hmm. No archive warnings apply is actually the highest. It's 715. What? Yeah. I know. I was surprised. Everything I'm going to say is pointless. No one's actually thinking <laughs> in the ship anymore. What happened? <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. In, in interviewing people, one of the things I've heard is a lot of people are saying, where did all my dark fic go? Yeah. Mm, yeah. So I don't know. That's interesting. There's also the creator chose not to use archive warnings, which yes. is proceed at your own risk. Those are like mm. 438 fix is what I'm getting on that. So it's a little so more than they are. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So this is a good time to sort of talk about the state of the fandom at the moment, though apparently my information is all out of date. Uh, so <laughs> take that out of Because it's been a while since I've played in the sandbox. I do apologize. But so generally, I would break up the types of Angbangs. This is, this is important because we need to discuss sort of this ship, Angbang, is dark. It is messy. It is, you get into Dubcon territory, you get into these characters are the villains and they're doing horrible things. And mm-hmm. how, how do we engage with romanticizing these characters? Okay. So in my mind, there are three kinds of Angband fans. Angbang fans. I'm never going to say Angbang correctly anymore. <laughs> there are three kinds of Angbang fans. And mind, this is an overgeneralization. But there, there is a lot of crossover between these three groups. And I think this, but I do think this generally applies to all problematic ships in one way or another. This is just from my personal experience of being a kinkster in fandom for two decades now. Uh, so this is just what I've seen in the time that I've been doing this. So the first two of the three types of Angbang or problematic fic fans are the ones that I would call the apologia people, the people who are engaging in apologia, who are apologizing for something. Mm-hmm. 
the more common apologia fan is the I can fix him types. These are your serial killer groupies in real life. They are your poor little meow meows, your woobifications, your Kylo Ren apologists, etc., etc., etc. These tend to be younger fans, but not always. And they really just create versions of really nasty fictional characters that are romantic heroes or overly sympathetic and tend not to interrogate why they're attracted to these characters, but rather seek to make excuses for them. Mm-hmm. And it can get it can get really grating. Again, I'm not going to tell anyone, don't write the fic that you want to write. That's not how I play. You have fun in your sandbox. Have a good time. But there is that segment of people who are just apologizing and trying to create a romantic hero out of a baddie. And you get that with this fandom as well. The second type of Apologia fan, which is a lot less common, but is definitely still there, and we cannot ignore them, and Fobbs is unfortunately one of these, or at least was, we don't know if she's changed her mind about it, uh, so I don't want to entirely slander her, but if she has in fact changed her mind about it. And those people are the ones who genuinely agree with these problematic characters and their behavior. Yeah. These are your Nazi fetishists, generally. These are your stealth fascists who will turn a blind eye because they secretly agree, but they know better than to say anything. Yeah. These are the people who think Hitler had some good points or that we should sympathize with real villains of history beyond just surface level understanding of yeah. why they did what they did. Right. From what I understand, this was a big problem in like Hitalia fandom. Both of these kinds of apologia were. It's a big problem with Attack on Titan fandom because the show is built on an anti-Semitic framework. We can, based on the information that we have, assume that Fobbs is or was one of these people. Mm. I don't know if you can still find this art on her Tumblr. I did not go looking for it, but I distinctly remember that she drew fan art of key figures of the Axis powers. I distinctly remember Hitler, Goebbels, cool. and Hirohito. Oh cool. no! Okay. Yeah, that is very a cool choice. and good. Yeah, Oof. and and if I remember correctly, though, so please on this do not quote me because it has literally been over a decade. She dug her heels in about it when confronted, saying something along the lines of "Just because I find them to be interesting people doesn't mean I agree with what they did." Oh boy. Well, good. It's like what's his face with the the garden of dictators uh, in his. Oh <laughs> yeah. shit! Yeah, I forgot his, about that. And his Nazi napkins, where he's oh. like, "Oh, I just keep this memorabilia to remind me of how yeah. bad they are." And like, and to be fair, like this is not a bad thing on its own. Like, we're historians; we sometimes find shitty people super interesting. But I'm not going to go around writing fanfic or drawing comics of Jeffrey Dahmer, who I personally find really interesting. <laughs> This whole thing is a big red flag in my book. Now, again, I don't know if she ever apologized for this. I don't know if she ever took any of it back or if she ever changed her mind. I know nothing about it further, and I don't necessarily care. What's important is that we can't ignore that the major contributor to the popularity of this ship is one of these types of fans, and I think that is significant. We can't really ignore that. Yeah. Yeah. But but then we get to the third type of fan of problematic contact, which I find be the best people you can pretty much know in any fandom, but I'm biased. For this purpose, I'm going to call this group the Kingsters. These are people who have approached really complex topics with nuance and thought, and who are, whether they realize it or not, engaging in kink behavior in a fandom setting, which requires me to explain what that is. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, So if you're not a Kingster already, here's some education. If you are, have a cup of tea. (laughs) Get comfy, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, kink and BDSM communities are founded in an understanding that the thing you are really super hot for or super into may not be socially acceptable and may not even be ethically or morally acceptable. 
and you know that. But there is a place to play with these desires that is safe, both for you and for other people. The space is a sort of fictional bubble that is negotiated between yourself and your partners with explicit consent and communication, and with these caveats, with knowing that no one is actually in danger that they haven't consented to, because you can consent to be in danger, that is a big thing, but you are consenting to it, and that no one is actually acting on these desires in the quote-unquote real world with real-world consequences. This allows, for example, people with rape fantasies, and this is a huge percentage of people, by the way, that is statistically known, a huge amount of people have rape fantasies. It allows people with these fantasies to play with that fantasy without actually being sexually assaulted and without actually sexually assaulting anyone. But there are systems in place to play act that with safe words and having discussed it beforehand. And this is often restorative, freeing, sensual, and deeply intimate because you have to trust another person. Mm-hmm. And trust is everything. All of this to say that kinksters are really good at understanding the difference between fiction and reality. And through fiction, through this bubble of unreality, we can explore the worst parts of humanity from a safe distance. And that's fun. That's why the horror genre exists. Yes. We as humans mm-hmm. enjoy that thrill, but have the morals and ethics to know what isn't okay, usually. Yes. And I believe that a lot of what fanfic writers are doing, especially with fics like Angbang, is engaging in the same behavior, whether they realize they're doing it or not. Fanfic is a safe space to explore the really nasty things humans get up to. And as long as you tag your content appropriately, your readers are consenting to engage with that content. And mm-hmm. these, I think, are the best Angbang shippers. We have a lot of fun getting really nasty and weird and violent and questioning lines of consent, but everyone who's reading it has consented to read the fic. Yeah. Thank you so much for kind of taking us through that, because I think that's such an important element of kink that a lot of people may not sort of understand on the surface level when like they first think about it. And I think that that's such an important conversation for people to have amongst themselves, like not not just in fandom, but particularly in fandom, because there tends to be cultures that emerge out of kind of a a performance of morality that or a pressure for it or yeah or yeah exactly that sees the these bubbles of unreality and mistake them for reality and make judgment calls based on those that are really really dangerous and really really nasty and i also think that a lot of people like in general should be educated more about kink and about what the ethics are kind of behind it, what the appeal is behind it, because I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding before a lot of people because they just see like, oh, it's violent, therefore bad. Or it's like dubious consent, which is what Dubcon stands for. Oh, that's bad. Rape, you know, rape rape is bad. So I feel like more people should have this as part of their sex education I agree. Because I think that there's a place for it in the wider popular culture, not just in fandom. And that will kind of like, you know, from the outside will inform fandom in a much better way, in a much healthier way. So, yeah, yeah. thank you for for taking us down some of this, Mercury. I really appreciate it. And there are some complicated pieces of as you learn more about this topic, there's not just one way to do this safely and ethically. 
ethically, yeah. right? There's different frameworks. There's, as a shorthand, safe, sane, and consensual. There's also RAC, which is risk-aware, consensual kink, where, mm. like, as Mercury noted, like, there, you can agree to be in some level of danger and have the the means to get out of that and, and to, to say for it out of that. And in the context of fanfic reading, you have that as well. It's the back button. It's, yep. it's closing it's out of button. something that and stepping away and saying, nope, that was past my boundary. It was at my boundary. This is not for me. And it's okay to hit that and step aside. Yep. That is absolutely yep. okay. Yeah. And I think as we talk about the ethics of kink and fandom, I said I was going to bring this up, but we also, it's worth looking at the most famous example of where fandom and understanding mm -hmm. of kink sort of like came together in the general social consciousness. And yeah. so really briefly, that is the publication of the Fifty Shades of Grey novels and then the films that, that came from them. Those novels started as Twilight fan fiction. They depicted a lot of kinky acts, but they didn't always do so they often did not do so in ways that were in alignment with the ethics of the BDSM subcommunity. Yeah. And so they came to the attention of a very large, very hegemonic piece of the population. And some of that was great. It, it raised awareness that, you know, these very interesting things are out there that people may have wanted to get into. But the framework that they provided was used as a little bit of a manual for how to get into this in a way that didn't set people up well. And that yeah. was a lot, there was a lot of discussion within fandom and the kink community and the publishing community and all of this about the ethics of that particular depiction. Yeah. And like, just very quickly to add to that, like dubious consent and bad kink rules are perfectly acceptable in fan fiction if you have warned for that. Yeah. If you are if you are not saying this is a good example. Yeah. <laughs> like we'll get to that with Angbang. Angbang is not a healthy ship. It's not a healthy ship. It's not a healthy communicative ethical relationship, but it absolutely is a DS relationship in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But we as readers can ethically engage with it by saying tagging it appropriately and hitting the back button if we don't want it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I do want to go on record. Fifty Shades is a particular sore point for me. Mm -hmm. Why Fifty Shades is so dangerous is because it did open up BDSM and kink to a large audience, while depicting what is romanticized relationship like sexual abuse yeah. as yeah. kink, <laughs> and that's not what's depicted in abuse, those exactly. books at exactly. all. Yeah, emotional and like intimate partner abuse as essentially like, you yeah. can play act that kind of thing as part of kink, but yeah. you have to consent to it and there's no consent there. Yep. And essentially yep. the way that book was tagged, marketed, read and picked up was not accurate. Yeah. Uh, yes. it, it was perceived as a romanticized relationship rather than dubious consent under negotiated consent <laughs> abuse yeah. like As, all yeah. of these things that if you knew that's what you were reading and the author knew that that's what they were writing 
the tags would have told us something very different than what ended up being the, the cultural trend. They actually, in a really good podcast that I would recommend for anyone who wants to like, just listen to kinky people talk about kinky stuff. It's called The Dildorks. And they have a whole episode, multiple episodes where they trash Fifty Shades. And one of the things that they repeatedly talk about is if this was marketed as a horror, I'd be super into this. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. It's marketed as something positive and it's, that's not what it is. It's romance. Yeah. It's marketed yeah. as romance. Yeah. It's like, this This yeah. isn't romance. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just also a quick plug for romance author Jenny Trout, who did a chapter by chapter takedown of Fifty Shades, okay. where she went in detail about how problematic everything is. It's still up on her website, and it is a fantastic read if you really just want to hate read something without actually hate <laughs> reading it yourself. Hell yeah. I would also recommend Roxanne Gay's essay on the topic in her collection, Bad Feminist, is yes. also fantastic. There's a lot of good work that was done in response to this cultural event. Yeah. So let's um, get back to Ang Bang. Yeah. Wait, one more thing that I want to say. When we are reading fanfic, we can get a lot of important context and empathy building and a lot of things out of fanfic. Yeah. But unless something is written as a manual for how to do something, how to get into a particular event or subculture or anything like that, we should not take a piece of fan fiction and use it yes. as an instruction manual. Yes. yes. That's if it really is written important. as an instruction manual, it needs to be peer reviewed by the people who yeah. are part of that, that yeah, subculture. Sure. Yes. <laughs> it it needs sure. to yes. be a good resource instead of just an available one. Yes. yes. So as long as we're not reading our like delightful dark fic as the manual for how we should operate yeah. anything yes. and romanticize anything and, and find that normalized, in our own lives yeah we are okay yeah and bringing it back to Angbang, i think we could one sort of starting point of a conversation we could be having is the relationship of power in this ship so i think personally a really and now now that we're entering it with the framework of we're in our little bubble we have all consented we are all consenting adults who have consented to read dubious consent and potential sexual assault and violence and all of that we've all consented to read this i think a really big reason why the ship is so popular is because it taps into something fundamental about kink and that is that kink is in many ways a reclaiming of power mm-hmm. so there's a really 100%. interesting article yeah yeah and so there's a really interesting article on vice by Re- rebecca Liu called the subversive sexual power found in erotic fan forums which is it's a very very short piece but it's all about sort of how sex is often about power and fans in her argument it's about female fans but i think we can include queer fans in that because the statistic that most shippers are women is outdated to say the least but so her argument is basically that fans are able to feel powerful in a powerless world through kink in fandom. Mm. She quotes a Janelle Monet lyric, everything is sex except sex, which is power. And then says about weird kinky fanfic that it's, and this is a quote, it's a big fuck you to the way in which mainstream culture drip feeds us one singular meaning of sexual attraction, dictating not only who to desire, but how. And mm. what's left is a, yeah, what's left is a sanitized understanding of wanting and loving that excludes so many types of bodies and so many ways of loving them. The form of attraction seen on Tumblr's kink communities allows for disgust, pain, and absurdity to be sources of arousal in ways that dominant heteronormative mindsets about sexuality do not. 
Now, she's talking about people who want to fuck Venom or Pennywise, but I <laughs> definitely think this applies to Angbang as well because yeah, yeah, yeah. Power and the evils of power are such a heavy through line in Tolkien's work. Yeah. He wrote these two villains in particular to be all about trying to be powerful. So, of course, if we're looking for subversion of power, hello, perfect. They're hot because they're powerful, even if they achieve <laughs> their power in a horrible ways. They're yeah. hot because they're powerful. Right. And, like, there's another thing. There's from an article by Justin Lee Miller called The Psychology of Sadism, Why Some People Are Turned On by Others' Pain. And this article lists a whole lot of reasons of why people might be into sadism as kink. But one really stands out in terms of Engbang, and that is, quote, this pattern of findings suggests that, for some men, sadistic fantasies may be a way of exerting control that they don't otherwise feel they have, or perhaps compensating for a perceived deficiency or something that they feel is lacking in their own life. Mm. Like, that just screams Sauron <laughs> to me. Sauron. <laughs> oh, Sauron. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I think also fanfic allows us to interrogate all of this at a remove, like a, a, a very personal view, but a safe and, and removed view as well. It's, yeah. it is that safe space between us and the screen as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the discussion about power is really useful here as well. And I also want to say that, like, I was talking about fobs and the Russian influence, and I really don't want to paint all Russian Angbang fans as like fobs. Mm -hmm. I'm 100% sure that there are a great many of them who are engaging in kink discourse behavior the way that everyone else is. It is notable, also, that the translator of the 1992 edition of Lord of the Rings into Russian, Vladimir Muravyov, uh, specifically noted that the Lord of the Rings is a book about the nature of power. Right. I said this is all about power, and it is. It's the Muravyov quote is, quote, this is a book about the nature of power, which seeks after power over mankind, power without morals, an enslaving power based on lies and violence. And Markova, who quotes Muravyov, notes after that quote that the first Russian Tolkienists saw it as a way out of the dead-end ideology, the structured totalitarian world of evil, lies, and slavery. So, like, not all Russian Tolkienists are like mobs. <laughs> I really want to make that very clear. But it is very much this, like, this conversation coming out of Russia about the nature of power in The Lord of the Rings, if the translation of The Lord of the Rings is super heavy on the point of it being about power. Here we come to sort of this, like, conflagration of it, and power manifests in really kinky ways, yeah. is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think yeah. that, that seems like a, a, a place where I'd like to maybe transition into talking a bit about what I think is, is my own personal favorite interpretation of this ship, which mixes power with religion, with theology, with the Odyssey. And, and the best way I can describe that, and I have seen this, this done in this ship, and I think it's, for one thing, I think this ship can be a really great way of interrogating Tolkien's theology, for one. I think it can be uh, an interesting way of interrogating some of the contradictions that are inherent, say, in Sauron's character, particularly in the way Tolkien changes his description of Sauron over time. And in things like Tolkien stating, you know, that, that Sauron adored Morgoth, but Sauron also loved order. And yet Morgoth, Melkor, represents really this kind of chaos god his yeah. his mission mm. is so much at odds with Sauron that there's a lot of times you'll run into fandom people asking the question, well, what happened there? 
<laughs> how did <laughs> how did this end up happening? How yeah. did this this character who is is being described as obsessed with order or loving order or wanting to order the world mm-hmm. end up thinking his best direction in life was to throw his his hat in with this this chaos destructor god? Yeah, with this god who he wants to see the annihilation of the world. Yeah, chaos is a ladder. <laughs> yeah, and this is also like I, I definitely want to hear all of your stuff about the Odyssey and saints and all of that, Cameron. I'm super into it. I think it's great. But this is also exactly why I read this relationship as so much fundamentally based on power and the hunger for power, because Sauron has shown time and time again that he's able to play submissive to get what he wants. So at some point, submitting to Melkor becomes simply the ladder to climbing rather than genuine belief. Right. And like, right. I'm, I'm. The way that I read it, and that's just what I love about fandom, is like we can have these completely different interpretations of this ship, mm-hmm. and they're both completely correct. Like, for me, I almost don't think he actually adored Melkor all that much, mm. because Melkor is an mm. object towards his achievement of things. And once Melkor's in the void, I do not think if Melkor came out of the void, Sauron would just go back to groveling. There is mm-hmm. one Lord of the Rings, and he does not share power. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's definitely an interpretation that I've seen. And it's one that I it's, I can enjoy in, in some forms. It's not yeah. it's not the hand, headcanon I have. But like you yeah. say, the great thing about fandom and fic in general, and Sauron in particular, because he's a shapeshifter in more ways yeah. than one, is that both of those can exist simultaneously yeah, sure. and make complete sense in the context of Tolkien's greater canon. Because for me, this is when Tolkien says adore. That's something that to me brings to mind, like those examples of Baroque art that mix the very erotic with the religious symbolism, like ecstasy of of St. Teresa, those kinds of things where this religious adoration obtains this physical, sensual, erotic dimension for me, that's, I think, what, what hits the spot most yeah, when it yeah. comes to depicting Sauron and Melkor. Now, now personally, my headcanon is I see Sauron becoming quite disillusioned, but mm. that is the way that I try to make that contradiction that I see between yeah. Yeah. this odd couple of the order lover and the chaos god work. It has to do with this, this idea of, of religious adoration. Mm. <laughs> Whereas, like, for me, what works for me, what's very sexy for me, is the seducer, power climbing, mm-hmm. and big being the docile, submissive to get what he wants. And then if Melkor comes back from the void, Melkor putting the groveling, scheming upstart back in his fucking place. Mm-hmm. Like, that's yeah. delicious. Mm-hmm. But like, that's what's so great about like all of this. All of this is all of this is true. All of it works. <laughs> well, because I think the place where I really enjoy is the the place almost between those interpretations of the uncertainty as the character is the reader as to whether the adoration is genuinely felt or performative mm-hmm. and yeah. at what point it changes over between those two when yeah. it when it is opportunistic and when it is genuine and how those different interpretations change how events work yeah Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm falling under I think okay, my headcanon is Sauron always followed Melkor from a little finger chaos is a ladder kind of thing. But 
I don't think that Sauron is as much like Littlefinger because I feel like Sauron has teeth in a way that Littlefinger didn't. Like, right. I think by the time Morgoth is thrown down at that point, all mm-hmm. Sauron has left is contempt and he knows mm-hmm. he can do better. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if I'm going yeah. to read a fic, that's what I want. Yes. I want him to be like, fuck Morgoth. He had everything and threw it away. I can do it better than he can. I'm going to yeah. be what Morgoth couldn't be. Yeah, He never followed the schedules I made for him. All of my Google Docs were ignored. I did so Fuck much work in his planner. I, I can't, he didn't follow any of my suggestions. And y'all, y'all just introduced a new headcanon of Sauron for me, which is the like evil villain's assistant TikTok yes. dude. <laughs> that comes from Fobbs. Fobbs yeah, definitely. That, that's, that. Where that, I, that's the first place I saw that with Fobbs. And honestly, yeah, the, the- So funny the crack idea in my head for why Sauron fell is because he had to do one too many group projects in Almeron. <laughs> and he just had had enough of this shit and he thought it would be better with Morgoth. No, it was just as fucking bad. Yeah. And also you couldn't see it because it's a podcast and so people can't see my face. When it Alicia was doing a thing. When Alicia mentioned Littlefinger, I was just like gasping because literally in my notes and I'm going to read this to you what it says in my notes. Okay. Then. I just got there. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking about how like this idea of Melkor putting the groveling scheming upstart back in his place is very hot to me. So like even though I do believe I agree with you, Sauron is a lot more has a lot more teeth than Littlefinger does. Way more teeth and they're all very shook. <laughs> Where Sauron's power is manipulative. Melkor gives me big power is power vibes. You know, yeah. that scene yeah. in Game of Thrones where Littlefinger is like power is manipulation and then Cersei goes, "No." power is power and basically almost threatens to kill him because she has so much power that he has right now right like right melkor like sauron thinks he's really fucking powerful he thinks that he's the strongest most powerful smartest being on on arda but melkor is fundamentally stronger than him <laughs> wow yeah yeah mm-hmm. super into that yeah and, and sauron's just gotten too big for his britches yeah yeah Ooh, yeah. yeah 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 i love all of these different interpretations and these different readings and this is what i love about both fandom and fan reception theory yes yeah definitely yeah same 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 like i'm i'm not an angbang shipper at all really and so i'm just i i love hearing everybody's things like kind of coming together and like existing in i don't know if harmony is the right word for a chaos god and <laughs> But I feel like harmony is the exact wrong word. Yeah. <laughs> it all exists simultaneously and is all sort of true at the same time. And yeah, I just really love because, yeah, again, and kind of getting back into the discussion about like BDSM and like the discussion about negotiating power and exploring what power means to us as individuals. It gives us a safe space to explore feeling empowered, especially in places where we may not feel empowered at all. And I feel like in fiction and in art and in, you know, in fandom sort of teasing out a lot of those pieces, I feel like that's where we can find a sense of of liberation and a sense of real engagement with the real world and sort of the real, real power dynamics, I guess in a way that's safe and consensual for for you exactly and you can get as nasty and weird as you want and then walk away 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm like, so I don't know if anyone but me remembers this fucking fever dream. There was maybe two years ago a fan poll that went around Twitter and Sauron won the comfort character pa- fandom poll. Isn't that wow. incredible? That's wild. Yeah. I can't find it anywhere. It's disappeared into the memory hole that is the internet. It was Twitter, and it was only right? two years ago. It was Twitter two years ago, so it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And it's just, it was so funny. It was so funny it's to wild. me because I looked at this and I went, you see, this is evidence of how many kingsters there are in this mm. fucking community. The Dark Lord <laughs> of Mordor? Why, yes. He's your comfort character. I think Elrond <laughs> got spot number two. Really? Which makes sense. <laughs> like, like, that's my emotional support, Dark Lord. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so wild. And I love it. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. Good. But I think it's also, before I go too far to- off topic, I'm going to say like, one thing and we're going back to the topic. But <laughs> I think it's also a way that a lot of us use of coping with the hard things that are going on in our actual real lives and the primary world and all of the the very real hard things that are going on is to explore the hard things through fiction. And so being able to come back to something that is a, a familiar and predictable trope of a dark lord and the the relationship dynamics and interrogating that and and all of that it it makes a lot of sense why there is uh, so much of that in in our fandom but then also in so many other fandoms as well and this is the the crux of horror theory like this is right horror works because this is just what horror functions to do it functions to give you one a safe space to be weird Mm -hmm. and two this way of coping with really difficult things in a way that's detached from reality. Mm-hmm. It's an endorphin release in a safe context yeah, or environment. Exactly. It's a way exactly. to play act the the very real fear and danger and all of that. Yeah. But, yeah. You said it much better than than I did. But yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's appropriate for a spooky season because I feel yeah, like yeah. we all kind of engage in this as a collective kind of at the same time. And it's it's important to do so because I feel like in a lot of ways people sort of see this time of year and autumn and and spooky season as kind of like a pressure valve and kind of like yeah. a little yeah. little bit of a release yeah. where we can kind of really let our weirdness shine and really let some of those dark things really come to the surface where we can play with them and feel safe with them in a way that is, again, liberating and healing in a lot of ways when so much of the world is actually extremely scary and very confining and oppressing. Yeah. 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 There is a very reasonable, logical, and appropriate reason why we seek out dark fic, why we write that, why we seek out Friday the 13th movies and, you know, Freddy and Jason and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and all of these classic horror pieces because they are a way of processing that is safe and healthy yeah and my husband he asked me like you have an anxiety disorder why do you enjoy playing silent hill why do you enjoy doing these things because i'm in control of silent hill i can turn it off i can't turn off the real world yeah i can turn off the game yeah so there's a there's a really interesting phenomenon that's been observed that the people who most enjoy 
kidnap stories. So plots about kidnapping anywhere from bodice ripping to like you're, you know, being kidnapped by the pirate and now you're in a romance novel to genuine horrifying kidnap, like rape scenario, fan fiction and stories. The people who enjoy those the most are generally, not always, but generally people who experience a whole lot of shame or limitation in their life like people who are supremely religious teenage girls queer people who are still in the closet yeah like people who experience a lot of shame they cannot do these things themselves so they cannot experience sexual pleasure on their own so if you have the mechanism of you've been kidnapped so you now have no choice Mm -hmm. in the matter Mm -hmm. you can now enjoy that experience you can now yeah. enjoy the sexual experience because the power is out of your control. You exactly. are not to blame in your shame space. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mm-hmm. think what's really interesting about Angbang, and especially because Fobbs really created a big, massive chunk of the ship, and Fobbs also created this like office worker dynamic between them, mm-hmm. is that you kind of get with Angbang, you get this like experience of to, to be crass sucking your boss's dick because he has power over you and then being stronger than him at the end of the day yes. and like having more power than him at the end of the day yes and so like i think and i again this is two melkor fans who are angry at me for saying this and have listened to this entire podcast <laughs> and we have a fucking thing about melkor sorry guys <laughs> sorry but I, do, but I do feel like melkor is secondary in this ship i i think he is the catalyst for which Sauron grows as a character. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that kind of ties into my personal pet theory about like how I think Sauron is a much more interesting character and villain than Morgoth ever was or ever will be. Again, sorry to the Melkor friends, <laughs> but I, I sort of feel like Satan's lieutenant, I feel like, is always going to be kind of more interesting than the popular de- depiction of Satan. Yeah. You know, Paradise yeah. Lost accepted. That list is way more interesting. But it's like, yeah, it's like, I feel like Paradise Lost is, you know, Lucifer might be sort of the exception, but I feel like the person who's not the embodiment of evil is always going to be a little bit more interesting because we can't kind of conceive of the literal embodiment of evil as like a person. You know what I mean? And so it's sort of like that person who is not like this archetypal sort of nebulous sort of being that's supposed to just be pure evil is always going to be more interesting and that's why i think sauron is a lot more of a compelling and a lot more powerful villain than morgoth kind of ever was or will be yeah i agree with that totally and i think one of the things that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the road to hell being paved with good intentions and you know who would be worse with the ring it would be gandalf Sauron has the distinction of, despite what Tolkien says in his letter to Christopher about when he was dealing with good and evil and and trying to work that out for himself, recovering from his time at the Psalm, that's what generated Morgoth for him, was working through Mm -hmm. that. Despite him saying that, it's Sauron who's the, the character that Tolkien in the 50s starts to refer to as someone who at one time actually did have good intentions and did actually start out to some degree, in some way, with benevolent intentions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's an incredible, incredible character arc to take someone on. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Totally. That's, I mean, that's why he's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, like, it's how do you get from this 
really good intention to just wanting to make things a little bit more orderly. And like me and Cameron are both control freaks. Okay. <laughs> me and Cameron <laughs> both anom- this. anonymous. We're control freaks and perfectionists, and I have really horrible ADHD and desperately need to get my life under control at all times. So like totally relate, totally relate to someone wanting to help people be their best version of their self. But I also through Sauron, actually, I can use him as an example of what not to do. Yeah. Because I can see myself going, I'm controlling other people with my version of what's correct. Yes. And that's not okay. Yeah. (laughs) I know what's best for you. Yeah. And Cameron and I joke all the time about how Sauron is a Capricorn. Total Capricorn. Total Capricorn. And I'm like, I'm a Capricorn. And I'm like, yes, I relate to these feelings of wanting that degree of control and kind of saying to myself, man, if I had the power, if I ran the world, Mm -hmm. things would be a lot better because I would force people to be kind to each other. I would Uh force people to not be dips, (laughs) right? And it's sort of like Virgo energy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, as a Virgo. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, and I'm, I'm a Virgo moon. So it's, there you go. But it's like that sense of, again, thinking that you kind of know best and that you can direct people to be their best like that's such a really like powerful intention Mm -hmm. and such a dangerous intention too like that's how cults start man like yes yes exactly i mean that's how fascism happens yeah Yeah. that's how fucking fascism happens so yeah 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 and that's all that's contained in that line in the Lord of the Rings at the Council of Elrond when, you know, Elrond says nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. That's in the context of what could happen to anyone if they took up and used the ring with good intentions. You can become Sauron. Exactly. Even Sam, when his whole yeah. like, imagination of what's going to happen if yeah. he takes the ring and becomes a gardener and just gardens the whole fucking world yes. to death. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> Eventually, it will be a totalitarian garden. It will happen. Yeah. yeah. Eventually, <laughs> it's going to be the most regimented garden with nothing growing out of place and nothing on un- no, We're going to get no monoculture. Weeds. Yeah, we're going to get, <laughs> we're going to pant plant like bradley pears all over the place sam getting sam getting the rain is monsanto like (laughs) that's a fucking hot take we need a whole other podcast episode just about the ring and then i can rant for two hours about a major what i want to talk about for for what i want to talk about at miscon this year so follow up up number three i guess (laughs) i I do want to mention like really quickly uh something that occurred to me when we were talking about sauron and how he's so compelling versus melkor it's really the r1 versus a1 problem Mm -hmm. oh yeah because tolkien spent a lot more time developing sauron than he did morgoth melkor yeah yeah. That's a great parallel. That's a very, very good parallel. I was thinking about it, too, in terms of we get to see Sauron in three ages. We get to mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. Morgoth Melkor in one. Mm-hmm. Although I, I wonder if we actually get more direct screen time in narrative from Melkor, especially if you add mm-hmm. in the Book of Lost Tales and the yeah. early depictions where it's not quite to the Silmarillion where everything's summarized and you have more, more full narrative of, of everything. You might get more of Melkor then, but He's not as varied as Sauron mm-hmm. is. This also brings into the point of do we consider the ring to be Sauron, which I know me and you both yes. do. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if we consider the ring to be Sauron, then Sauron is there the entire yes. fucking time. So then we get yeah. far, so, far more Sauron. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. But that's again, 
whole other thing. <laughs> Say, um, well, another follow-up episode with you guys just talking about Sauron instead of this, <laughs> this freaky ship, man. <laughs> Sorry, folks, we're just becoming a Sauron fan podcast <laughs> for like the next 82 yeah. episodes. Yeah. We'll be back yeah. to everyone else eventually. This, <laughs> this is how we end up in the bad place. We don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to become the poor little Meow Meows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to bring Morkoth back into it a little bit, one of the things I find really fun, this is not even just sexy or evil or nasty or cute or whatever. I just find it really fun that we have someone who's just throwing fucking temper tantrums every five fucking seconds and his nanny. Because <laughs> 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 like, Melkor is a bazillion times more powerful than Sauron. And what does he do with it? Wreck stuff. Like, Whereas Sauron is like, oh, order, I must make things and fix things and make things organized and you're just knocking down the towers. Yeah, okay. Fuck these lamps. Yeah, fuck these lamps, man. <laughs> fuck these trees. <laughs> just terraforming some shit, you know. I absolutely adore like <laughs> Lieutenant Era Sauron and that yeah. depiction of him as the long-suffering Lieutenant of Angvin uh, trying to take Morgoth Mr. Idea Man take his ideas and make them work functionally make them... yes yes oh my god i just had the most horrible thought of oh no morgoth as like elon musk and no. oh god oh, no. i've read oh. this fic i've read this fic no not not like Have specifically you? referencing it there's definitely so there's like a whole i i don't read a lot of fic because i'm very very picky and i don't have a lot of time but i one of the things i really love is modern AUs, and the really common Morgoth and Sauron modern AUs are office-based, always. <laughs> and they are, very, well, not always, but mostly office-based. And I have read a fic where Melkor is this, like, big CEO, <laughs> and he hires this, like, weird goth punk <laughs> very well-buttoned, like, you know, like, fashionable goths? The ones who have, like, really perfectly... Yes done everything perfectly but everything's in black hires him and then it's just like oh you're a kinky bitch i am also a kinky bitch <laughs> we're gonna have some fun with this <laughs> oh my god but... i love it <laughs> yeah. uh, producer tim gets to cut this later if he wants but i do also want to point out that Tim, who is always you know along for the journey here but never taking the spotlight did just suggest a Blackadder Angbang mashup, and I need this in my life. I need this in my life too. <laughs> yes, yes. Definitely, it's a yep. good idea. It's a good idea. Oh, my God, it's such a terrible idea of like, especially like of Elon Musk being <laughs> just, uh, just literally destroying everything he touches, and poor Sauron yeah. being, I guess, whoever's left at Twitter. <laughs> The one loyal employee holding the entire Morgoth network just together. Just having a weird obsession with the letter X. Yeah, we'll keep workshopping <sighs> it, I guess. I don't know. The parallels don't quite mash up, but... I will see if I can find, because that's not one of the ones I have bookmarked, which I'm very surprised. I will see if I can find that fic, because oh. it was fun. <laughs> Terrible. Ugh. It makes me nauseous just thinking about it. Oh, man. <laughs> Do you guys want to talk more about some of the really freaky, gross shit that, <laughs> that needs to be in the content warning. <laughs> I mean, we did talk about, you know, actively talking about rape fantasies. 
So right. I think we have that all down in the content warning. I mean, I can read to you tags on the six Angbang fics that I have bookmarked. Oh boy. <laughs> They're actually not that nasty. Oh, okay. The fics are, the tags aren't. <laughs> so one of them is called Melkor's Golden Dragon, and that's the cock rings one. Okay. That includes tags, anal sex, anal fingering, rimming, cock rings, forge sex, light bondage, light dom sub, fluff and fluff smut. Fluff smut. Oh. I know. I mean, that's just fluffier than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> Another one called Golden Notes, which says rough sex. More tags to be added later. <laughs> More tags to be added later. <laughs> Mild foot play. Myron is the best role player. Dom sub play and submission. Foot play. Mild foot play. That's mild. I think the mild I think the mild tag is what's getting me. <laughs> Where I'm like, just a little footsie under it's the table there. Bit. Yeah, I was gonna say, is it like socks or fully <laughs> is that what mild means? <laughs> I mean most of these aren't even I'm sort of shocked at myself that the ones that have bookmarked are not the nasty ones. This is like you have to kiss the boot, but you don't have to lick the boot. Is that, okay. is that what mild means? That's, that must be what mild means. I will say, there is the one that's number that at the top of it, which means it's the most recent. It's called A Lesson in Dominance. Now, mind you, I can't tell you if I can recommend any of these fics, because I haven't. The last one was read in 2013, and I don't know if they're any good anymore. But I'm going to read you the summary. And this is a modern AU. A shadow fell over the table, and a big hand slammed down next to Myron's notes, upsetting his neatly sorted markers, which he wanted to protest, but when he glanced up, he fell silent. An upperclassman had approached their table. A senior, Myron thought, he hadn't seen the guy around much, but he always sported a sour expression and messy dark hair that hugged his ribcage. His leather jacket was torn in places, but in a way that seemed deliberate, and his skin had a sickly pallor, as though he hadn't seen the sun in several weeks. Myron didn't know what he studied or where he had suddenly come from. He didn't even know his name. Only that the smile he wore now was mesmerizing. Can I help you? Myron asked, throat suddenly dry. On the contrary, I'm here to help you. I know a thing or two about dominance. Want me to teach you? <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, there is a high school or college AU. <laughs> college AU. It's probably better, but of course there is. There's also a really <sighs> good uh, rock band AU, but I have to find that on the website. Oh, yeah. Like Melkor's in a metal band. Oh, I think, I've, I think I've seen at least art for that. I've not yeah, read it, but yeah. I've definitely oh, okay. seen that art. <laughs> Amazing. I do love an AU just for the way that you can take it and, and interrogate a lot of the standard pieces of understanding of a dynamic and just take it in a different context and re-examine it. AUs are I love fun. Them. I love them so much. They're my, they're my happy place. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for such a fun and informative and really engaging conversation. I feel like I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a while. So thank you guys so much again for coming. Is there anything that you guys would like to plug, like your socials, some upcoming projects where we can find you, anything like that? Uh, let's see. Well, you can find a recording of a paper I gave at the Mythopoeic Society OMS this year online. If you go to dc.swosu.edu and search for either my name or the title Through Sauron's Eye. You should be able to find that. Very much about the Sauron theodicy order, problem of evil, art of art stuff. 
I'm currently working on preparing a couple of my recent conference papers for hopeful publication. One is a look at Sauron's original name, Myron, through the lens of the literary onomastics. The other is about the stages of Sauron's development over Tolkien's lifetime and how those stages can map onto three proto-Sauron characters from the Book of Lost Tales. Next year, I'll be presenting at the International Congress on Medieval Studies at Kalamazoo with a paper looking at questions surrounding Sauron's corporeality and bodily wounds. All of these papers are the first stepping stones towards a larger project focused on Sauron, another part of which involves reception and fandom studies. And for that, I'll be producing one or more surveys, which I'm hoping I can get some good responses to within fandom. So if you have ever engaged with Tolkien at all, even if this ship is not your thing, even if Sauron isn't your favorite character, and this is something that you would like to participate in, you can sign up for a mailing list to be notified when that project goes live by going to sauronproject.com and entering your email. That site will also direct you to my other locations on the web. Just go down to the bottom bar and you can find my blog and my scholarship page and whatnot. And once again, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I gave a paper on Sauron's role as femme fatale on Numenor for the Tolkien Society Summer Seminar. That can be found on their YouTube. I can be found on my blog, which is And Its Folks Are Queerer at Substack. Uh, I also have a card, which is Lush the Magic Dragon at cards, etc., 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 with all of my information. I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky as Mercury Reads, and I'm going to stick it out on Twitter until they force me to leave. (laughs) 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 And I'm probably going to be submitting something for MythCon on the ring as queering mechanism and how it reflects Sauron's behavior in the Second Age, as well as in the mechanism for queering the seemingly respectable in the Third. So keep your eyes out for that as well. It's all kind of part of this ongoing thing that will eventually be my PhD. Oh, <laughs> so there's just gonna it's just gonna be endless. Amazing. Well yes, speaking of MythCon, we do want to announce on here on the podcast that we are going to be co-chairing and putting together a online midwinter seminar called Something yes. Mighty Queer. Queerness in fantasy, science fiction, speculative fiction, and other mythopoeic work. This is a event put on by the Mythopoeic Society, which we are all members of. And we would love to see material from you guys. And we would love to see you guys come to and attend our lovely event. So the call for papers deadline is November 30th, 2023. We are accepting all sorts of papers and presentations on topics about queer readings, queer coding, a whole bunch of things about not just queerness in Tolkien, but across the speculative fiction and science fiction and fantasy sphere. If you would like to submit your proposal, please send them to the email address oms-chair at mythcon.org. And that is, again oms-chair at mythcon.org. We look forward to seeing all of you there. The date of the seminar is February 17th and the 18th, 2024. Again, it's going to be held completely online via Zoom and Discord. So we hope to see you guys there. We are very excited to see what proposals you put forward to us as well. Yes. Just so excited about what could come from this midwinter seminar. Yeah. Thank you both, uh, Cameron and Mercury, for coming out. This has been such a good discussion. Oh, and I can't wait to have you guys back. Thank you for inviting me. This is is so much fun. 
yeah you guys are great we love you we love you both i i speaking for cameron i see <laughs> and she's and Cameron Cameron is definitely in agreement because Yay. I got caught up with the one you did recently with uh with Robin and, oh, yeah. and Chris and oh, Steve. Yeah. Chris yes. and Steve, yeah, which was really good. Wonderful. I really enjoyed that one. Oh, thanks. I'm very excited about that work. Me too. Yeah, your that episode made me realize I should probably ask Steve if he wants to help me with my PhD. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like everything Steve said, I was just like, yes, 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 yes. Totally. <laughs> and I know I know you already did the silver gifting episode, but if you ever want someone to just come on and read all of these gifts that you had given me, like out loud, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I mean, Hell I yeah. Amazing. Talk about silver gifting. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> silver gifts, gifting and Sauron and Arfarzan doesn't have a name. Isn't that awful? Makes me sad. Gotta come up with They're something. the two that I know the most about. So <laughs> should, should, could, could we just call it besotted? Like that could just be besotted. Nice. I do love it. Sour Sourazon. Sourazon. That sounds like a medication. That's an antidepressant. <laughs> oh, I so, so that's a fucking elf it name. Sourazon. <laughs> It's what you take in addition to your antidepressant. It helps enhance it, you know? Right. Well, be trained like or whatever. Billify or whatever. Yeah, billify. Like, that's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> you know, really, just like, just like there's always, you know, a generic name and then a brand name. Uh, we do get that out of all of the Numenorians, especially the later Numenorian things. <laughs> so is, is our Farazon the generic of silver gifting? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Thanks, Mercury and Cameron. Thank you, listeners, for coming out and giving us a listen today. If you want to find us, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. You can also stream episodes directly on Zencaster. That's Zencaster.com slash QueerLodging. It's a Tolkien podcast with hyphens in between all those words. Please leave us a rating, like, share, and subscribe where you can do so. Also, visit us on QueerLodgings.com. We have all of our episodes up there, including resources, and we may or may not have a merch store now. <gasps> you can also find us on all your favorite social medias, almost. You can find us on Facebook at Queer Lodgings, Twitter for right now at Queer underscore Lodgings, and we are now also on Blue Sky at Queer Lodgings. You can send us an email at QueerLodgingsPodcast at gmail.com with suggestions, thoughts that you have. We love hearing from you guys. Every single email that comes through, we all get all very excited about it. We do. Yeah, we really do. So cool. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank song to bring us thank out. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs>